Hi, my name is Mark Riggins, and I'm the senior pastor here at LifePoint Church. Thank you for joining us today. If you'd like a little more information about our church, check out lpchurch.us. I hope today's message is an encouragement to you. Well, good morning. Before we jump in today, I just want to real quick highlight and celebrate what happened here last Sunday. Last Sunday, if you were here, then you already know that we really were talking about this idea of moving toward belonging and getting in a small group. And I wanted to kind of give you an update. If you remember, we had all these groups around. Um, uh, in, in fact, my job was to take pictures here, and I didn't do it. But you, you those of you who are here, you remember this. Uh, but we had 20 life groups that were open and 150 adults signed up here last Sunday and what that means is yeah we can celebrate that the exciting thing is what that means is it brings our total so far to 34 groups and over 340 adults who are now part of a life group and the reason I celebrate that is because as we become a church where anyone can belong not just attend before they believe. This is a huge part of that is that you're in relationships outside of the Sunday with people doing life together. So I just want to celebrate that huge wave last Sunday and we believe more are to come and I'm grateful to be part of this church where we have that value and we do that together. Today I want to kick off with this question and it might disturb you a little bit. If your life is a commercial, what are you advertising? In fact, the best way to find this out is to ask your family and friends, if your life is a commercial, what would you say I'm advertising? If you were to ask your family and friends, summarize my life in one sentence, what would they say? And then if we were to take it a step further, we might ask, well, if LifePoint is a commercial, what are we advertising? Not what do we hope to advertise someday, but currently, what are we advertising? Individually and corporately, it's a good question to wrestle with. So today we're kicking off this new series called Investigating Jesus, How We Know and Why We Follow. And, and we did a little intro to this two weeks ago. If you missed that, you can go back and listen to the podcast. But here's what we discovered that was so important last time. It's important to know that Christianity, when we think of what it was founded on, it was founded on one single individual, Jesus of Nazareth. And knowing that it was founded on him, then we learned that Jesus is not a Bible story. The Bible is the Jesus story. You say, well, why is that such an important thing? It feels like we're kind of splicing things kind of thin. Here's why it's important, because so many of us who grew up in church then went off to college and our professors began to poke holes at the Bible that we were leaning our faith on and all of a sudden people who were smarter than us began to tell us, oh no, the Bible is pro-slavery, the Bible is pro-violence, the Bible is anti-women and anti-science. And we were like, well, I don't think so, but then all of a sudden the argument would change to something else as we were doing study on the previous thing and it's like we can't keep up, always trying to discern, can I have faith on this thing that other people are constantly trying to poke holes on? And after a while, we we see people increasingly leaving their faith because it's an exhausting circular argument of can I defend this Bible? Can I on my own answer this question? And this is the question we've all kind of wrestled with throughout the years is, is this entire 
Bible true? And let me just say what I said two weeks ago. I do believe that to be the case. I do believe that the Bible is inspired. However, what I also know is most people don't feel qualified to be able to have these conversations, especially when you're 18 and 19 years old and you're going into an environment where Scripture is being uh, dismissed or being argued or being challenged. And over and over, people are leaving their faith, especially at this age, because I believe we have anchored our faith in the wrong thing. Jesus is not a Bible story. The Bible is the Jesus story. And so having said that, I invited us to consider a new question, and that is a better question, where we narrow down Jesus is Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John a reliable account of actual events. And here's why that's important. Because every one of those gospels end the same way. They say that Jesus died for our sins, that he was buried, and that he was crucified, and he rose again and was seen by many, and that is someone that we can place our faith in. If any of those accounts are true, we can anchor our faith and lean against him no matter what argument is going on around us. Our faith has been and continues to be anchored in Jesus of Nazareth, in Jesus alone. By the way, if you're interested in just kind of learning more about Christianity, if you're learning more about the Bible and you're like, you know what, I feel like there's a lot to learn. I'm still trying to wrestle with what Christianity is actually all about. We have this conversational class that's actually going to begin two weeks from today called Starting Point. Now, right now, Pastor Sean's going to lead that class, and so we can only offer it at one time in one place. So it'll be at 9 o'clock at Rock Hill for four weeks. So it starts two weeks from today. If you're interested, you can just go to that same app they were talking about earlier. You click on the Groups tab, and you can find Starting Point. Or go to our webpage, go to Groups page, and you'll find that app there. Just want to make that available to you. It's a great opportunity to take another step. So back to our question. Is Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John a reliable account of actual events? And now I want us to narrow it down even more to just the gospel of Luke. Now Luke, a gospel of these four gospels, just simply the life and teachings of Jesus. Luke is considered, N.T. Wright is the one who said that Luke is the first historian to ever write about this first century Jesus. In fact, his goal was to take the document, the life of this first century man named Jesus, who was uh, crucified by the Romans and rejected by his own people. And I want you to see what he said his agenda was. If you're wondering, so what did Luke write about? Why is Luke so special? Why is it that we're going through? If I'm really wanting to objectively investigate Jesus and decide for myself, can I really believe? And if that's you, by the way, I'm so glad that you would have the courage to be here today. Can I really believe? The reason why we're looking at the Gospel of Luke is the way Luke begins, because he tells his agenda right out of the gate. And I want you to see it. In Luke chapter 1, we looked at this last time, but I want you to see it again. Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, he writes and he says, many, say that word out loud with me, say it with me. Oh, I love it. Half of you jumped right in. Let's try everybody this time. Ready? Say it with me. Thank you very much. Many, in other words, Luke's saying it wasn't just me. There were a lot of people who were doing this. They're writing about this guy. Now, why are they writing about this guy? You know how many first century rabbis we still have record of? 
zero outside of Jesus. This was a time when you wouldn't write about people. You don't have bloggers and influencers who have the time, right? Like in this day, food was scarce, life was hard. People aren't writing stories. And yet many people are writing about this one man because they believe something extraordinary happened. And he says, of the many who are writing, I am going to write, look what he says, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled, I love this, among us, meaning I'm gonna write this in a time when you saw it, I saw it, you can refute it, I'm writing amongst contemporaries, just as they were handed down to us. So who's he talking about? Luke was a very close associate of Peter, some would say the closest of the apostles to Jesus, James, the half-brother of Jesus, and the Apostle Paul, the most famous of the apostles. Those three were Luke's associates. These are who he's getting the eyewitness accounts from. Very direct sources. He had unique access. He said it was handed down to us from those who were the first eyewitnesses and servants of the word. And with this in mind, here's his agenda. Why are we studying Luke? Look what he says he's purporting to do. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated... And by the way, he probably didn't have a child's Sherlock Holmes outfit, $20 set from Amazon whenever he was carefully investigating. But appreciate Ben giving it a go, right? Carefully investigated. Look how holistic he wants to be. From the beginning, I too decided, this is how serious he is, to write an orderly account. I want you to know the events. And he says to most excellent Theophilus, we say, who is this guy? Most scholars believe he was a newer believer who probably had the means to subsidize someone to write the story of Jesus, chose Luke because of Luke's unique access, but knew he would need to be funded in order to be able to take the time to write. And here's why he did it. Look at the rest of verse four. He says, I do all this so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. I want you to, if you've ever thought, you know what I would love to do? I would love to just take the story of Jesus and go from the beginning to end and then really see an account of know exactly who he is and what he taught and what he did. Luke says, I'm gonna give that to you. I'm gonna give you an orderly account from the beginning to the end of who Jesus is and what he taught. He wants people to know with certainty. Now, what's interesting is Luke didn't know he was going to be writing the book of Luke that you and I would hold in our laps 2,000 years later or have on our device 2,000 years later. Luke had no idea he was writing the Bible. And we saw kind of the progression last time when we looked at this that it, it all began with an event, the resurrection, that changed everything, causing a movement, meaning a group of people began to follow. They called them people of the way. And then some of the people like Luke and the rest of the Gospels and we see some of the, the rest of the letters in the New Testament, they begin to document, they begin to have these documents and they would be spread around Galilee, spread around Jerusalem, spread around the Christians who were, who were a people of the way. They would have the Old Testament and maybe one letter or two letters or three letters. And that what happened, if you notice, is all of those happened in the first century. And the movement of God was launched, Christianity began, and then 300 years later, at the end of the 4th century, the Bible was taken together under Roman Emperor Constantine's rule and, and, and beyond when the, the Roman Empire was beginning to let Christianity come out of the shadows. And the Bible was assembled. All of these scholars and bishops were able to come together and actually assemble the Bible, and then we have what we now call the Bible. So Luke had no idea. He was simply recording the life and teaching of Jesus upon who our faith was founded. And all these people moved forward for three centuries, continuing a faith that was founded on this one person, Jesus 
of Nazareth. And so with that said, I want us to look at Luke chapter 3 today. And what we're going to be introduced to today is the warm-up act. We're going to be introduced to the, the pregame show of Jesus. It's a very interesting character named, referred often as John the Baptizer or John the Baptist. And to say he's an interesting character would be an understatement. But I want you to see it. It's in Luke chapter 3. And we're going to begin at the very beginning. Watch how Luke writes as if he is a historian. He says, In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius, Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of the region of Judah, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, not Texas, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, and the word of God then came to John. John was a common name in the first century, so he wants to be specific as to which one. He's the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. Now, John, he's going to make this claim, is a real person. He's not a Bible character. And the way Luke begins this whole book, we just read a while ago in chapter 1 in the first four verses, and the way he begins chapter 3, here's what he's saying. He could have just said, eh, you know, back in the Roman Empire, and then talked about Jesus. But instead, he is recording history. So he gives places, he gives names, he gives titles. It's very important to him to reference the time. And what he's essentially saying is, feel free to fact check me, because I'm writing it down exactly as it happened. And people who he was writing the letter to would have known the people he's referring to, the title, the places, and the names. And they would have been able to fact check. And now here we are 2,000 years later still with some remnants of history that allow us even to fact check Luke as he writes the story. In fact, there's one historian from the first century. He's a Jewish historian, Josephus, who writes in like the late 80s and early 90s A.D., and he wrote three kind of well-known uh, pieces of literature. One is the Antiquities of the Jew. One is the, the, the Jewish and Roman War. And then another is a biography. And in his uh, writings, he references this John, the baptizer, who we will see later in this chapter is, becomes a martyr and is executed by Herod. And in his writing after the book of Luke, it's this historian who writes, and here's a quote, he writes, now some of the Jews thought that the destruction of Herod's army came from God and was a very punishment for what he did against John called the Baptist. By the way, that's later in the, this very chapter, John chapter 3. And then he goes on to say, for Herod had him killed, just like we see in Luke chapter 3. Although he was a good man and had urged the Jews to exert themselves to virtue, both as to justice toward one another and reverence towards God. This is an extra biblical source referencing just, if you were to do a lot of study on the book of Luke, you would find a lot of material evidence that supports exactly what Luke writes in his gospel. He is being a historian writing about this first century man named Jesus. That's why I want us to go through this book together. And I want you to investigate and you get to decide for yourself, is this a reliable account of actual events? And then Luke goes on to tell us about this guy, this real character in history 
named John the Baptist. Here's what he did. Here was his message, and man, was it an offensive message. Look at verse 3. John the Baptist went into all the country around the Jordan, and here's what he was preaching, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, you and I hear that, and we go, well, that doesn't seem very offensive. It sounds a lot like the Christian message. But to the first century ear, that would have been so offensive because they had a system in place where you would go to the temple with sacrifices to receive forgiveness. And John the Baptist, this guy shows up out of the wilderness dressed funny and eating funny foods and has this prophetic voice and he is claiming, oh, by the way, the temple is corrupt, that thing that you guys all have put your faith in and you now have a way to receive forgiveness. The one who is coming after me is gonna introduce a brand new way of forgiveness, the baptism of, of repentance. And these people are going, wait, 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 this is so offensive, this is so controversial. And people started talking about it. It was like the ultimate presidential like debate as they're hearing about this John the Baptist and all of a sudden, People start coming out by the droves and they think of themselves as being religious. After all, their father, their children of Abraham, they would call themselves, were very religious. And so they come out to where John is because he's this controversial figure and he's talking about this new way of being, uh, of receiving forgiveness. And as they come out, look how verse seven, how John the Baptist welcomes these people out who think they're religious and think they're good. He raises the bar in his offensiveness and he said to the crowds, coming out to be baptized by him, he very gently says, you brood of vipers, right? Like it's just, welcome snakes. Can you imagine like if we started the service that way? That's kind of an offensive way to do it. And John the Baptist goes, well, we'll see the snakes showed up. It's good to have you here today. You brood of vipers, who warned you, he said, to flee from the coming wrath? You've heard what I've been teaching that someone's coming after I. And then he says, would you say this next word? It starts with a P. I'm giving you a hint here. Say it with me. Produce. Now you got to say it because this is the key word from here on out. Ready? Say it with me. Produce. Yeah, this word he's saying, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And they're like, wait, 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 wait. I thought we went to the temple. We had a system and we were getting repentance that way. I thought, I thought forgiveness was said. He goes, no, no, no. You need to produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and they're offended. Why? Because we're children of Abraham. We point to the father of our faith. And look what he says to that. And do not, he says, begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children of Abraham. I'm telling you, that was so offensive to the first century Jewish ear. And I thought, we read that now, and we're like, oh, wow, I don't exactly know what he's talking about. It sounds kind of rude, and, and go get him, John. Like, whatever, right? It's not offensive to us. What would, offensive, what would that sound like to us in the same way that would disturb us in the same way John was disturbing his first century audience? In other words, if we're 21st century Christians, and let's just say that people have bought into this idea of consumer Christianity, meaning... We complain about little things like maybe the church, we don't like the music, or we don't like certain decisions, or, or we don't like, you know, we're not, we're not talking about, you know, whatever enough, or, or, or we're talking about this too much, or whatever. Like, we have all these things in society, we don't like the way this is going, and, and we're kind of harping on the minor things. And it would be easy to say, and I know this because I know enough scripture, I am a Christian. If we were to have a modern day speech by John the Baptist to me and you, 
I took a little creative license. But let's say it would go something like this. After John said, you need to produce fruit, he would then say, and do not say to yourself, but I am Christian. I have prayed the sinner's prayer, and I asked Jesus to be my Savior. For I tell you, out of these stones, God can raise up Christians. That sounds a little more offensive, doesn't it? That sounds, feels a little more disturbing. This is how it would have felt to those first century uh, those who were in the audience of John the Baptist. They begin to hear, uh-oh, that doesn't sound good. You know what John knew? John knew that some of those people in the crowd would, in just a few years, would be down the road and they would be shouting, crucify him, crucify him. And he said, it is not enough to say that you're children of Abraham. You must produce fruit in keeping with repentance. In the same way, it is not enough for us to say, I'm Christian. We must produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Why is this so important? Because he's saying to be a child of Abraham for them and for us to be a child of God for us, he's saying you keep treating it like it's the finish line, but it's the starting line. In other words, when we become a Christian and we believe it is the starting line, we finally entered the game, but the field is action. The goal is to do something. It is to produce fruit, not just to believe. And John is about to say the key action for somebody who really follows Jesus, if you're going to investigate Jesus and you decide he really is who he says he is, then the result will be to follow him means I will live my life doing for others. I, as a follower of Jesus, will do what Jesus did. I will live my life doing for others. Now, here's why that's important. Because if you're here and you're wrestling with your faith, maybe nobody even knows you're wrestling with your faith. You may have been taught by people like me in a church that believing is the most important thing. And to be a Christian means that you will believe the right things and that that is the ultimate goal. That, I believe, is what I would call consumer Christianity, where we find a stagnancy to life, a lifelessness to life, because we were meant to get into the game through action, through doing faith for others. So the crowd responds to John. They're obviously very offended. He's called them snakes, and then he said, I could call up rocks to do what you guys are doing. So they respond. I don't know if it's mockingly or if it's genuine humility, but either way, they ask the right question in verse 10. They said, well, then what should we do then? John, tell us, what should we do? And they're expecting a religious answer, like begin to memorize these things, begin to, to understand these things, begin to uh, do these things sacrificially. But instead, he gives such a practical answer that's about doing in verse 11. Look what he says. John answered and says, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none. And anyone who has food should do the same. Just go and share. Go and give. Go and get in the game. Don't stop at the starting line. Get into the game. In other words, a real simple way, when you see a need, meet it. This is what we are called to do. It's sometimes I can make it too complicated, right? Like when we see a need, meet it. In fact, it doesn't matter what somebody's background is, what somebody's political party is, doesn't matter what, what, what you like or don't like about them. It's just like you see a need, we meet it, right? It's what we're called to do. But think about it. God 
is about to send his son who will come and meet the need of the world, then it makes sense that those of us who would choose to follow him would then turn around and meet needs. It's what we have been called to do. And then he really ratchets it up a notch. Because he goes, oh, and don't forget, remember tax collectors? They're kind of like in their own subcategory in the first century. There's the sinners, and then there's the tax collectors. They're a worse kind of sinner, so they get their own kind, and that's the way they were seen. And so he says, and by the way, I think every generation or every century has their own kind of subcategory sinners that, that, that equate to tax collectors. You can decide who you think in our generation are the subcategory sinners. We know we all are, but there's the stereotype of it. And here are the tax collectors. I love the way it begins in verse 12. Even tax collectors came to be baptized. Isn't that awesome? Like, don't you want that before your name? Like, even Dennis came to be baptized, right? That's what you want. You, you want the word even before you. Even Shane came to be. That kind of fit, though, didn't it? That actually, that kind of landed. <laughs> it, it's the way, like, it, you don't want the word even before your name. But here, even the tax collectors came to be, and then watch this, and they responded with the same question, well, then what should we do, John? Well, don't collect any more than you're required to. I love that he, he kind of adds something because they're maybe, you know, kind of slow to pick it up. He goes, okay, look, if you see a need, meet it, and stop stealing, okay? Uh, that's all I want you to do. You see a need, I want you to meet it, and by the way, stop stealing. Don't do more than you're required to do. It's kind of uh, be unique and be distinct in this way. And as a result, these people who listen to John the Baptist, they, they start going, man, you have such unusual wisdom, you have such unusual teaching, so distinct. Are you the Messiah? We've been waiting, our people have been waiting for the Messiah since the beginning of time. Are you the Messiah? And John wants to be so clear. No, 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 I am the pregame show. I am the warm-up act. He's coming, he's coming. I want you to know about him, and that's my job. Verse 16, he says, I baptize you with water. Oh, but one who is more powerful than I will come. The straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Guys, you haven't seen anything yet. He's coming. And all oh, this Jesus, he is worth following. John the Baptist wants his crowd to know he is so powerful and so loving and he will meet the deep, deep need in your heart that you have and only he can meet it. And our faith will lean on him generations from now, millennia from now, the world will lean their faith on the one who's coming, he said. I want you just to get ready. And they're like, how? How do we get ready? What do we do? I love this. He says, do something. Just do something. Don't just believe. Don't just know. But get off the couch and do something. This had to be where Phil Nike got his slogan. Like he's got to be reading Luke 3. Like just do it. Like just go and do something. Don't stop. Be about, it's not about, that's the starting line to believe. We're about doing so back to our original question, if your life is a commercial, what are you advertising? By the way, Jesus said, your life is a commercial. You may not want that to be the case, you may not have thought about that, but remember, he's the one that said about us, 
that you are the salt of the earth, that you are the light of the world. And then he goes on to say, and you should let your light so shine before others that they will see your good works. And as a result of what they see in you and what you're advertising, that in the end, they will glorify your Father in heaven. Jesus said your life is a commercial. You don't get to choose that. What you do get to choose is what you're advertising. In fact, if we were to take this up an extra notch as believers, the question is what version of faith are you advertising? Is it the knowledge faith or is it the doing faith? You see, I think these first century Christians got it right. They said, what should we do? And that's the right question. And can I just say, one of the things that always breaks my heart, ever since I was a little kid raised in church, and I would hear this over and over again, usually from people who were trying to, um, well, I I don't know their heart, but it, it always bothered me because it never led to a good place. When people would say, I want deep teaching. And can I just tell you, there is no such thing as deep teaching. There is deep activities. Jesus said at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, it is not what you know, it is what you do with what you know that means you have moved to a deeper Christianity. And the problem is, and please don't ever substitute uh, deep teaching with following Jesus. Following Jesus is about activity, it's about an action, it's about getting off the couch, it's about doing something and being involved in the kingdom. I love that when we are willing to ask that humble question that's on the screen, what should we do? If I go to the Father, I say, Father, what should I do? You know what he will invite you to do? Almost every time, he will invite you into the deep waters of action, of of getting in that place of of, of messiness, of not being comfortable, of other people who do life differently or look differently or believe differently and us to enter in and to begin to walk with them and, and share the light and let our light shine before them so that they will then glorify the Father. We've been called into the deep. We've been called into the deep and the deep end is all about action. I'll be honest with you, one of the things that always breaks my heart are people who stay in what I would say is the shallow end of Christianity and it's knowledge, knowledge, knowledge. It's what's in it for me. And then what eventually happens is we see more and more people walk away from their faith is at some point someone somewhere has something they haven't thought of and it begins to dismantle the thing they've anchored their faith in, knowledge. When over here and you're in the deep end, you're barely treading water and you're desperate for God. You're not losing your faith. This is where your faith grows when you get in the game because this is the starting line. This is getting in the game. And John looks at them and says, I don't care who you claim you are children of. Produce fruit in accordance to repentance. That's when I know you're following the one to come. Now, I gotta tell you, I think... LifePoint does this about as well as any church I have ever known. In fact, I get to experience this every Sunday morning. This morning, I was driving, uh, let's see, it would be south on Coit. And as I did, I drove past our Rock Hill campus. And of course, nobody's there. It's about seven in the morning. And I'm driving past, and all of a sudden, I see these two big trucks and big old loaded down trailers 
driving past me that say life porn aren't. And these are amazing volunteers who are driving it up at seven o'clock so they can go up there and set up. And they've been working ever since with a whole bunch of volunteers setting up that campus. And then I arrive here and already there are a bunch of cars here and there are lots of people who are walking around already beginning to set things up and prepare things for ministry. They got their LifePoint t-shirt on and they're doing their things back in all the different ministry areas. And I walk up and I say hi and I always just want to say thank you, thank you for what you do. And I've yet to hear one of them say, I'm out of here in December. I just can't wait till Christmas. I'm done. This is not worth this t-shirt. All the things I'm doing is just not worth this t-shirt, right? No, our volunteers, they show up and they are unstoppable. They are ready to serve. They are preparing to minister because they are here not for themselves. They are here to do ministry for others. I love that about this church. In fact, I would go further to say one of the things I am so amazed about you all is that we now have a higher percentage of people who serve meaning you do for others, than any church I personally have ever been a part of. And so, you know, let's just do this real quick. If you serve in some way, and you're the people who don't ever like the attention, but doggone it, play along. If you serve in any way, you're, you're like a greeter, you serve on the worship team, you serve on the tech team, children, students, Stephen's ministry, group leader, wherever you serve in any way, would you right now let us just quickly say thank you for all you do? Would you just stand right now where you are? Would you just stand? Yeah, go ahead. Thank you. Come on, stand. I know there's a lot of you. Thank you. Thank you for what you do. Thank you all very, very much for how you serve and you do so much for others. It is so encouraging what you do. I love it because we are a doing church family. We get it and I love that about our church. And I just wanna say this, this fall, we're doing outside the walls again. And in that series, we're going to do like we did last year. We're going to pick a bunch of organizations, nonprofits here in the area, and we're going to serve them. We're going to partner with them through giving and serving. Some of you, because of what we did last year, are serving. You've been serving all year through these great organizations, and I love that so much. And there's going to be more opportunities for you to give and serve. But listen, I just want to say, if you're not in the game yet, if you're trying to do comfortable Christianity, it is going to lead you, this is my biggest fear, it's such a dangerous place to be, it's going to lead you to a staleness where your faith will wilt and where you are actually in a dangerous place. And I believe that's what John was getting at. Jesus is the one who later will say in Matthew chapter 12, verse 50, it's for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven. That person is my brother and sister and mother. And the Lamb of God is about to come. John's trying to get us ready. The Lamb of God is about to come. And when the Lamb of God comes, he is going to change history. Not because of what he believes, not because of what he knows, but because of what he does. And just remind us, believers didn't change the world. Doers changed the world. And if you're here today and you're struggling with belief and you're wrestling with your faith, it might just be because somebody like me years ago in some other place sold you to believe as the ultimate goal, and that may have let you down. It is simply the starting line, and then it's about doing. It's getting in the game. It's getting in the deep end. So here we are in 2023 with so much ahead of us, and I just want to say it again. Believers won't change the world. Doers will change the world. So here's a closing prayer I want to invite you to pray today. It's a very simple prayer taken out of Luke chapter 3. It is simply this, Heavenly Father, 
What should I do? We're going to have a lot of chances for you to serve this fall. But before we get there, just as an individual, would you begin to pray this prayer? In fact, would you just say this prayer out loud with me? Say it with me. Heavenly Father, what should I do? I want to invite you to pray it today and every day this week and for as long as it takes for your eyes and hearts to become open to the needs around us. And when God, and he will, I promise you this, God will answer your prayer when you pray this prayer. He will reveal needs that you hadn't maybe seen yet or hadn't felt yet or hadn't been uh, able to appreciate yet. He will reveal those needs. And when he does it, you'll just say, I'm just gonna step in. I am committed in advance. God, when you reveal a need to me, I'm gonna step in in any way that I can. And it begins by you praying this prayer. But I give you the warning, if you are willing to pray this prayer, he will answer it. He will show you needs that he has strategically and supernaturally placed you to meet. And keep in mind, just as John would teach, believers don't change the world. Doers change the world. Now, we started, if you were in here at the very beginning of the service today, with an opening song where they sang, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. And if that's you, John the Baptist is gonna say, the one you're looking for is Jesus, whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. And next week, as we continue through the book of Luke, he shows up. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much That you love us so unconditionally that you didn't just send us a manual. You sent us Jesus, your son, a savior. And God, as a result, we now have a relationship with you. We have the opportunity to engage in a relationship with you. And as part of that, you are sending us to go, to be involved. The first word of the Great Commission is action, go to get off the couch and do something for others. God, help me, help us to pray this prayer. What do you want us to do? What should I do? God, we know you will be faithful to answer that. As we continue to continue the legacy before us to be a doing church, may we serve those around us in ways that bring glory to you. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.